I was going to start with a joke and say that there are three kinds of people, those who can count and those who can't. But I decided against it, so I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to say that there are three kinds of people at work, those who do enough to get by, those who do their best to contribute to the advance of the mission of the company, and then those who are actively trying to sabotage the mission of the company. Have you ever met somebody in the first category, those who are just trying to do enough to get by? Someone that's trying to do the minimum amount of work in order to collect a paycheck. They're not interested in, in getting ahead. They're not interested in a, in a promotion. They're not interested in helping the company. They simply want to um, waste time when they're there. Um, they, they're the type that play games or, or are uh, not working except when the boss is around. Um, and uh, so there are those who do enough to get by. Then there are those who do their best. They want to contribute. They believe in the company. They want to advance the mission of the company. So they work hard to do that. Maybe, obviously, in a Christian setting, those who recognize that there's a greater master than their boss, even so they're working for God. Um, and then the, those who actively try to sabotage the mission of the company. Is it possible that we have the same three kinds of categories in of people in our local churches today? What kind of person do you want to be in this church? Do you want to be the person that just does the minimum, just does enough to get by? What is it that God requires of me just so that I can sneak into heaven Right, I can make it into the heaven by the skin of my teeth. What, what's the minimum amount that I need to do? Or, obviously, we don't want to be like the third group, the one who actively opposes the work of God. I trust that no one's in that category. Or is it that you want to be like the second group, those who do their best to contribute to the advance of the mission of the church? Well, if this is you, then Paul... And what he has to say here in chapter 2 is vitally important because Paul is saying that how we live in the context of our meetings, our church meetings, our gatherings, how we live in those meetings matters. That in some sense, the proclamation of the gospel is dependent on the character and the actions and the attitudes of those of us who claim to embrace the gospel. And that means that our worship services ought to be filled with prayers for kings and authorities, as we saw last week. But it also means that we should avoid the tendencies that we constantly have towards self-glory. That is, that we are constantly stealing glory from God and trying to, to, to get people to, to give glory to us. And so we need to push off those tendencies. We need to shed those. We need to crucify those those tendencies for self-glory because the church is not about us. It's about God. So, let's read our text tonight. I'll read it. You follow along in your Bible beginning in verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the Word of God. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of, of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman 
must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Paul is concerned about the, the universal mission of the gospel, the spread of the gospel through the church. And because the universal mission of the gospel depends in some way on the way that we act, then here's the point of the text tonight. Men and women must not act out in self-glory. We must not pursue self-glory. And so he's going to take one verse to talk about men and how they can tend to pursue self-glory in their praying primarily. And then women and how they pursue self-glory in the way that they dress and in their desire to have authority over men. Alright, so first, the tendency of men towards self-glory. The tendency of men towards self-glory in verse 8. One of the ways that men express their desire for self-glory is with an unholy manner of prayer. Men pursue or display their desire for self-glory with an unholy manner of prayer. Notice the first word there in verse 8. It's therefore. So everything that Paul says connects to what he just said in the previous paragraph. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul was talking about world evangelism. He said that God wants all to be saved. And therefore, you ought to make sure that your conduct as a church is consistent with the godliness that you claim to have. And so you ought to pray for your authorities. It's a good way to do it. Recognize that God has a worldwide mission to reach all people. And because of that, then, then we ought to live in a way that's consistent with the God, godliness that we claim to have, which is what he's going to tell the women in verse 10. You claim to have godliness, now live like it. Paul's exhortation for Timothy is that wherever the church meets in homes, that, that men should pray properly. Notice verse 8. I want the men in every place. So remember, at this time, they don't have a church building. They don't have probably a regular place of meeting, of assembly. They would meet in multiple places depending on uh, whose home was available. And, and so whenever you meet together as a church, you are the church when you meet together. It's not the building, right? So whenever you meet in these homes, men ought to be praying properly. And Paul's main concern is not that they're not praying, but rather it's the way that they're praying. He's not saying some of you men just aren't praying at all. He's saying, no, when you're praying, you're, you're pursuing or displaying your desire for self-glory. He doesn't want their prayers to be done in such a way that would profane the worship of God, that would make the worship of God ordinary or mundane. So we could summarize verse 8 with the maxim. We could say that the prayer of men in the church ought to be done in holiness. The prayer of men in the church ought to be done in holiness. Let me show you where I get that. Notice, I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands. And then the, the second phrase there, without wrath and dissension. So let's think about this first one, with holy hands. First, lifted holy hands, we could say. Lifting up holy hands. The, the idea of lifting up hands is a typical posture of prayer in the Bible. You can find it throughout the Old Testament and in Luke 24 as well. That, that when people would pray, 
uh, in the time of the Bible, they would often lift up their hands. And they, this was symbolic of the person's emptiness. They were lifting up their empty hands to God and with their petitions asking God to fill them. We come with nothing, right? Like the song that we sing, nothing in my hands I bring. Right? Simply to the cross I cling. And so they, they lifted up their hands. And so um, notice what kind of hands these are. They're holy hands, which indicates that the man must cleanse himself spiritually before coming to the throne of God. Not, you know, wash his hands. Not talking about that. But rather that he should be um, serious and reverent about what he's going to do. He's entering into the very throne room of God. He should not ca- come carelessly or flippantly or, or just kind of breeze through the prayer as if it's just another thing that's going on in the day. But rather to take great thought to it like the Old Testament priests would have to do before they could enter into the tabernacle. Right? I'm entering into the very presence of God or Moses entering into the presence of God at the top of Mount Sinai. Or Moses um, meeting with God at the burning bush. There's great reverence there. Take off your sandals, Moses, because where you're standing is holy ground. And so men, when we pray, we must pray carefully, thoughtfully, worshipfully, in a holy way, not flippantly or carelessly. The implication seems to be that men in the church at Ephesus here were praying without a concern for their dirty heart. Right? They just kind of, I know things are stained, but hey, this is what we do. This is, this is part of our ritual. This is what we do. We, we pray. And so Paul says, make sure that you pray in a way that represents the God that you're coming into contact with, the holy God. The second way we see that it should be holy is in that last phrase in verse 8, without wrath or dissension. These two things speak of the inward and outward disposition that inwardly a man must not be wrathful, that he must not have some kind of resentment uh, towards others, especially those for whom he's praying. And then outwardly dissension, he must not be using his prayers to to air dirty laundry. The implication again is that men are praying in a manner that minimizes or marginalizes God's throne as if God's holiness is not a concern. And so they, they use their, their, their time for public prayer as a way to, to browbeat someone of lower status than they. Or to, to, uh, to, to, to speak their agenda. And Paul's saying, listen, the prayer is not about you and about advancing your desires. It's about God. And His holiness. And so make sure when you come to pray, men, that you pray with a holy heart. A holy desire to meet up to God's expectations. That This is the way that Paul sees in the church at Ephesus that men would display their desire for self-glory. And he says we need, to, we need to make sure that we come with a holy disposition when we come before the throne of God. Secondly, we see... Uh, the tendency of women towards self-glory in verses nine through verses nine through fifteen. So Paul talks about one of the ways that men can seek self-glory through their prayers. They can profane the public worship of God. Now he turns to a, a couple of ways that women can profane the public worship of God. And the transition is seen in this word in verse nine. Likewise, and Paul's going to give two ways that women 
can express their desire for self-glory. They can profane worship with the way that they dress, verse 9. And women can profane worship in their subversion of authority, verses 10 through 15. They can, they can um, take a position of authority um, in an improper way. So let's look at these two first. Oh, we get them all there. Women pursue self-glory with improper clothing. Women pursue self-glory with improper literal clothing, verse 9. Paul's exhortation to Timothy regarding women is that they should have proper literal clothing. That specifically women should not be immodest in, in their attire, nor should they be flashy. So what is proper clothing for women? First, proper clothing is not immodest. Notice the two descriptions that Paul expects for women with their attire. In verse 9, I want women to adorn themselves to put on clothes that are modest and discreet. Modestly and discreetly. To be immodest is to be undignified and to be tasteless. It is the opposite of modesty. It's the kind of attire that says, immodesty is the type of attire that says, I am promiscuously available. I've come to flaunt the features of my body. I want you to gaze on me. But ladies, public worship is not about your body. It's not about drawing attention to yourselves. And it's certainly not about promiscuity. And therefore, you women ought to dress modestly and discreetly. Secondly, proper clothing is not flashy. Notice um, the second part of verse 9. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Okay, so, so there he's saying that it's not just that it's not immodest. It, it does need to be modest. That's true. But it also can't be flashy. There, you can be modest and flashy. You recognize that? That, that you can come and, and use your clothes in a way to draw attention to yourself or your wealth. There's no prohibition here, I think, against taking three strands of hair and weaving them when he says not with braided hair. I don't think that's what he's saying, but rather about the practice in those days of interweaving these other items that follow the braiding of hair. So notice again in the text, not with braided hair and gold or pearls. So what they would do in those days, particularly prostitutes, would, would actually weave into their hair this gold and pearl. What would that do? Well, it would draw attention to their hair and to themselves. It was an ornate way of designing their hair so that people would, would so that they would get the attention of men particularly. And this kind of fancy hairstyle was associated with prostitution. And this is so I would suggest to you that this is not a prohibition against women ever wearing a braid. Or the other thing that can be taught from this passage is that women should never wear any jewelry because it says without gold or, or pearls. But again I think this is the two of them together. That you're actually interweaving in your hair um, the, these jewels in order to draw attention an elaborate hairstyle in worship is, is a flashy kind of way to draw attention to yourself without being immodest. And what God is saying is no. Don't do either one. Don't be immodest and don't be flashy. It's not just their material clothing that was the problem. Their figurative clothing could also pose a problem in public worship. And so verses 10 through 12, we see improper figurative clothing or spiritual clothing, we could say. 
improper clothing of nominal claim of a nominal claim of godliness in verse 10. So don't put on the improper clothing of a nominal claim. A nominal means a name only. Right? So if you're a, a nominal Lions fan, it means that you say that you're a Lions fan, or maybe better, a nominal Patriots fan. Right? It's all these bandwagons ones that, that they come on and they say they're the Patriots fans all along. They're really not. They're just the Patriots fan in name only. Once they start losing, they're, they abandon ship. Okay? A nominal claim of godliness is one who says, I've got a claim of godliness but I don't really care how I live. So instead of immodest or flashy clothing, instead, women should adorn themselves with what? What does the text say? Verse 10. But rather by means of good works. Ladies, the best and most compelling clothing that you can wear is the clothing of good works. This is the kind of clothing that is consistent with your claim for godliness. Notice the end of verse 10. That's why I keep saying this claim for godliness as is proper for women making a claim. So your claim for godliness becomes nominal when you don't put on good works. When you live a life that is, that, is, um, that is characterized by good works, then you have a real claim for godliness. It matches your lifestyle. Your clothing matches who you are. By implication, we see that in the church at Ephesus, there were women who were apparently making a claim of godliness and then wearing these elaborate or immodest clothing as a way to draw attention to themselves. And Paul saying, cut it out. Adorn yourselves not with all these things to draw attention, but rather adorn yourselves with good works. And this makes sense because good works are the result of genuine faith. So that's what we would expect to see from both men and women alike. The second type of improper clothing we see is in verses 11 and 12, the improper clothing of subversion, the opposite of submission. The fact that Paul needs to remind Timothy to teach the church about a woman's role in the service of worship indicates that there was a problem there. It implies that there must have been some women who were usurping the authority of their husbands and potentially the pastor and taking roles of leadership and teaching when they should not have. And so Paul prohibits both of them. And so he says, a woman, when she assembles in the church, her general disposition should be what? Verse 10, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So I would say it this way, a woman, you're must have the general disposition of a quiet learner. A quiet learner. Now, just with the, the quietness in the room right now, I realize that this, that statement may rub us the wrong way. I mean, it sounds almost dirty to say that kind of thing in 2017. But what may sound dirty is actually a principle derived from the Bible. Look at the text. And let, let me show you where I get that. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And then verse 12, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So women, you ought to, generally speaking, have the, the posture of Mary when Jesus came to eat with Mary and Martha at their house. That is, that she was a quiet learner. She sat at the feet of of Jesus listening to him speak. Now, 
let me try to, to tell you what Paul does not mean. Paul is not suggesting that you become passive and that you just, you know, just kind of float down the lazy river of doctrinal teaching that comes through the church and just say, you know what, whatever the men say in the church, I'm going to believe because I'm just a submissive, quiet learner. That's not what it means. Okay, it does not mean to be passive. Learn from the example. I would encourage you to learn from the example of Priscilla. Priscilla was the one who, when Apollos spoke, a man who was learned in the Scriptures. Didn't quite get it all, though, did he? And so Apollos, uh, so Priscilla and Aquila, so Priscilla with her husband, took him aside and explained to him more carefully the, the truths of the Scriptures. So let's be a little bit more precise in what we're saying here, Apollos. I, I know you mean well and everything, but so I would say learn from her. She was not passive in that. Rather, she's actively engaging her mind in the Scriptures. She had studied to show herself approved unto God. Right? She worked hard to search the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul had said was true in Apollos. And, and when it didn't fit with Scripture, she approached the man in, a, in an appropriate way, right? in quiet, right? in, or I should say in, in, um, in private, not in a public setting. She didn't stand up and say, No, Apollos! Rather, she, she approached him along with her husband. And I think that's a, a good example to follow. Notice the manner of, um, of your demeanor, women, at the end of verse 11, with entire submissive, submissiveness. The opposite of entire submissiveness is abrasiveness or usurping your role under your husband or under the leadership of the pastor. And so your general disposition when you come to worship should be as a quiet learner. Now, there are two prohibitions that go along with this, with her disposition, that go along with the disposition when the church assembles. So the way that this looks, what does this look like in real time? Well, she must not do two things. We need to see this in verse 12 because there's a dual prohibition that Paul gives. First, I do not allow a woman to teach, and then we get add an ellipsis, dot, 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 and go down about six words, a man. I do not allow, allow a woman to teach a man. That's the first prohibition. The second prohibition is, I do not allow a woman, dot, 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 to exercise authority over a man. That's the second prohibition. Okay, so do you see that in the text? He, he does it by combining the... The word or, you can't do either one of these. It's not like you can choose which one you don't want to do, but you can't do either one of these. You can't teach a man, and you can't have authority over a man. So let's talk about this first one. Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach a man. Let's talk about what this does not mean. This does not mean that a woman cannot teach at school or have an executive position at a job. This does not mean that she cannot be a governing authority and be able to have rule over a man in that way. There may be some implications that we can draw from that, but that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is talking about within the context of the local church, a woman cannot teach a man. And so we need to recognize the scope in which Paul is teaching. Secondly, this does not mean that a woman cannot teach at all. Right? Turn over to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And notice what Paul tells to older women. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. But notice, 
Instead, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, and so on. So Paul's commending teaching for older women. So he can't be saying that you can't teach at all. And that's why we need to think clearly about verse 12 of 1 Timothy 2, that a woman cannot teach a man. That's the key. Women ought to teach other women. There ought to be a discipleship-type relationship that's going on. That you, as a more mature believer, should be able to find younger ladies in the church that you can teach. But also, women are to teach children as well. right? Within the context of their own home, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, uh, Paul says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within which... Uh, within within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it's in you as well. So he's commending Timothy's mother and grandmother for teaching him the truths about Scripture, and and he, they they did well to do that. So this does not mean that a that a woman cannot have a position of a uh, of teaching in a public setting. This does not mean that a woman cannot teach at all. She ought to be teaching other women. She ought to be teaching children. And thirdly, this does not mean that a woman cannot have an opinion or a doctrinal conviction. And I already mentioned Priscilla, who advanced the work of the church in a proper way by pulling Apollos aside to straighten out some of his doctrine. And so I would commend her to you. But we also have the example of Yodia and Syntyche, who labored with Paul in the Gospel in Philippians chapter 4. Paul commended them, that they were part of the work of the Lord. And so it seems to me that, that women ought to teach, but here the prohibition is against teaching a man. Second prohibition in verse 12, I do not allow a woman to dot, 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 exercise authority over a man. That is that no woman in the context of the local church can have a position of authority over a man. And so biblically, there are no women pastors. There are no women adult Sunday school teachers unless it's a women's only class. And so let's think about this in our church where do we draw the line? When is it that we stop allowing a woman to teach a male? Where do we draw the line? When can a woman teach a male student and when can she not? It seems to me that a male can be under the teaching and authority of a woman in the church so long as he has not reached manhood. That's, the te- that's what this te- text says, right? You cannot teach a man. It doesn't say a male. It says a man. So... Once a a boy reaches manhood, then a woman should no longer be teaching him or having authority over him. In other words, if a high school young man is under the authority of his mother at home and receiving instruction at home from her, then it seems that it's also biblically acceptable for him to receive instruction from a woman at church. It seems that in our culture that that manhood... um, come somewhere around the end of high school, right? When they start to make decisions on their own, they move out from their house, start to get a job, start to, um, start to make decisions on their own. And, and um, at that point, there, there shouldn't be any women teaching those young men, we could say. Shouldn't have authority over them. Let me just talk through a couple objections of the passage that have come up. Um, some explain this passage away by saying, that this is only talking about women false teachers, so only women false teachers shouldn't teach a man, and they sh- women false teachers shouldn't have authority over a man because they're teaching falsely. The problem with this view is that the text doesn't say that, and there's no indication that there are any women false teachers in Ephesus. 
only meant. Further proof is, is seen in creation, as we'll see in verse 13, showing that this is a, an issue with regard to uh, gender, that is that God has set up a certain role, a function, and it's not proper for a woman to have authority or to teach a man, authority over or to teach a man. Others argue that this prohibition is given because women were not well educated. So, you know, in their context, they weren't very well educated. But now, you know, women are much more well educated. They're educated better. Um, and uh, so they can, you know, make it through high school and college and, and uh, further degrees beyond that. And so now it, this prohibition doesn't really work for us. But Paul doesn't say that at all. His focus, again, is going to be his proof for this is going to be found in creation. What was the, the setup with creation? And let's bring that over into the church. That's Paul's point. And further, recognize that Priscilla would have been a part of this church at one time. Part of her responsibility was to be a member at the church at Ephesus and to help it as it was um, growing. It seems that Aquila had a large part in, in starting this church. And she was well-educated. And so that prohibition doesn't work because Paul's saying, even you, Priscilla, ought not to teach a man. Even though you are well-educated, you cannot teach a man or, or have authority over him. Paul reminds Timothy of what a woman's general posture ought to be at the end of verse 12, to remain quiet. This doesn't mean that she cannot sing. right? We have a command to sing in Ephesians chapter 5. All of us ought to be singing when we come together to worship. This does not mean that she cannot give prayer requests. It does not mean that she cannot publicly pray. We know that from 1 Corinthians 11. It does not mean that she, she can't give a testimony. It doesn't mean any of those things. But rather that her demeanor is one of quiet respect, submissiveness. That she's recognizing her role within the function of the local church. So what's the big deal? Why can't women teach or have authority over a man? Well, the answer is in verses 13 and 14. Paul gives two proofs, the basis for why women ought to have this demeanor of a quiet learner. Um, what am I looking at there? How many times did I put that slide on there? All right, sorry about that. Just try to figure out what's going on here. I can't. Uh, verses 13 to 15, the basis for a godly woman's submissiveness. First, there are two of them. First, women must submit because of the created order, verse 13. And then second, women must submit because of the events of the fall, verses 14 and 15. So first, here's the first proof why women cannot teach a man or they cannot have authority over a man is because of the created order. And the reason I know that this is a proof is because of the first word in verse 13, for here's why a woman ought, a woman ought to act in this way. Within the context of our assembly, it is because or for Adam was first created and then Eve. So the function of male leadership is not something that came about as a result of the fall. We might want to explain it away and say, well, you know, it's because sin entered the world that, that, uh, women, that women have to have this submissive role to their husband. But we need to recognize that even before the fall, before sin ever entered the world, God had already established a relationship of authority. That is, that God is over man and man is over woman, that, she ha that He has authority over His wife. 
And we saw also in 1 Corinthians 11, we're reminded of the Genesis story that the woman was made from the man, that is, that she was made from his body, that she originated in him, and she was made for the man, right? As helper suitable for him. And so her role is was, all the way since the time of creation, it was one of support and help. And that's the way it ought to be in the church. That's what Paul's saying. Second proof for why a woman ought to accept her role of submission within the church, one of quiet learner, is because of the events of the fall, verses 14 and 15. Further proof why women should not teach a man or have authority over a man is because of the events of the fall. And what happened in the fall, verse 14, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, here, Paul's not trying to say that Adam was innocent. You know, it wasn't his fault. It was Eve's fault. He's not saying that. Instead, Paul talks in other places about how Adam bears the responsibility for the sin of the world. In fact, the reason that sin came into the world because one man sinned, right? So it's actually Adam that bears the weight of responsibility for the sin of the world. But the point here is not blame. He's not trying to pass blame on one or the other, but rather deception. Which one of them was deceived? In other words, Adam knew exactly what he was doing when he sinned against God. Eve, on the other hand, was deceived. And how do we know that Eve was deceived? Well, the text in Genesis chapter 3, we don't have time to turn there, but Genesis 3:13, God says, What have you done? And what does she say? The serpent, what? Deceived me, and I ate. So very from her own mouth, she says, I was deceived. Adam knew very well what he was doing. And so because of the events of the fall, women must accept their role as quiet learner. Recognize that this is one of the ways that you display good works. This is one of the ways that you throw off that tendency that you have for self-glory. That I want to be able to teach a man. I want to be able to have authority over a man. God says the best way that you can show your good works and that you desire my glory is to accept what I've given you as your responsibility, one of support. Verse 15, women are vindicated through the birth of children. Now, this is a difficult verse and at first glance it sounds like childbearing is the pinnacle fulfillment and destiny of every woman. But that goes against, I would suggest, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, when he commends single women. He says, if you can be single, do it. You know, live your life so that all of your focus is on God. That's great. Not all of you have the ability to do that. So if you can do that, do that. So he's not saying that the pinnacle of being a woman is bearing a child. I don't think that's what he's saying. Now, there are some people that disagree with me on this, and I would say godly people disagree with me on this. But but think about this verse in light of what Paul's saying in verse 14. Paul seems to be saying that Eve failed in eating the fruit because she was deceived, but she will be vindicated, verse 15. Notice verse 15, but women will be preserved. And really that word women is supplied by the New American Standard translators in order to help us to understand. But we could actually translate this but she will be preserved that is eve even though she was deceived by eating the fruit she will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in the faith that is the seed of the women they continue in the faith so what i would suggest to you is that this bearing of the child 
this, this word bearing of children is actually a singular in the Greek, so it would be the bearing of, of a child or bearing of the child. And so I think this is talking about the fact that women are vindicated through the bearing of the Messiah. That through the seed of Eve, even though she was deceived, she's now vindicated by the fact that through her, through her seed, one of her um, gender will bear the Messiah. And this goes along with the promise that we see right here in, in the text of Scripture that we're considering, Genesis 3:15, that God will crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman. So women are vindicated in that through the passing of time, one of their gender will give birth to the Messiah. And His salvation, this idea of preservation in verse 15, is available to all who believe and all who show the fruit of their belief by persevering in the faith, in love and sanctity with self-restraint. So I, I think that Paul's just um, he's, he's expounding upon his, his um, idea of what happened at creation and the fall. That the don't fear just because Eve was deceived that all is lost. You are actually an important... Um, uh, you have an important role in the work of God in bringing about the Messiah and this Messiah will reign. So let's think about some application tonight as we conclude. And I'm just going to throw them both up there for you. Number one, humble yourself before God in public worship. I say this often, but... Um, I say it often to you because I need to hear it myself, for myself. That is, that worship is not about you. Worship is not about me. Whether you're male or female, worship is not about us. We all need to remember that worship is about God and about magnifying His glory. And so we should never do anything that would detract from the orderly worship of the sovereign King for whom we come to meet. When our worship becomes about fulfilling our lusts and desires primarily, then we have lost our way. And that's why we need to be regularly submitting ourselves to the Scriptures. We need to find out, Ephesians 5.10, find out what is pleasing to the Lord. We need to find out what's pleasing to the Lord with our giving. How can we be pleasing to the Lord in our greeting of one another, with our singing, with our preaching, with the reading of God's Word, with our fellowship? We ought to resolve to do nothing that would draw attention to ourselves unnecessarily and take another person's eyes off of God and instead focus on us. Humble yourself before God in public worship. And the way that we humble ourselves, the idea of humility is to acknowledge what is true about God and what is true about us. So God, you are the maker, the leader, the shepherd. We are the followers. We are the sheep. We will do what you say. This, is, this service is not about us. Secondly, acknowledge your individual tendency towards self-glory. So if you're a man, your self-glory might come in this one example that Paul gives. It may come in how you ask questions you know, to show how smart you are. It may come in how you flippantly enter the worship of God without regard for your cold, calloused heart. Self-glory for you might come in, your, um, in the way that you pray. Maybe you have the tendency to be like the Pharisees in Matthew 6. They prayed in order to be seen by men. Jesus says they have their reward. You know, these Pharisees had these huge, flowery prayers that drew attention to their great education, and yet... 
They weren't even concerned about what God was thinking. Jesus knew because He knew their hearts. Jesus commended the man who just stood off to the side and said, Be merciful to me, sinner. Maybe, men, you have a tendency to be passive instead of proactive when it comes to praying. Maybe you'd rather someone else pray because you're too self-conscious about how you'll be heard. Again, your prayer to God is not about you. Whether you're tempted towards pride, you know, showing how great you are in your prayers, or you're tempted towards false humility. Like, you know, I, I can't really do a good prayer, so I don't, don't want to do that. Don't be a glory hog, men. All the glory belongs to God. Recognize what kind of tendencies you have for self-glory and, and avoid those things. Come to worship with holy hands and genuine prayers and avoid anger and contention. If you're a woman, your tendency for self-glory may be in the arena of trying to get formal acknowledgement of your skill in teaching and leading men, but, but you need to recognize that any desire for you to teach or have authority over a man in the context of the church is a temptation that comes from the very pit of hell. God wants you to see your function in the church of Jesus Christ to be one of support and help, much like your role in a marriage relationship if you're married. This is not a lesser role. This does not make you a lesser person. I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus doesn't have authority over the Father. He stands throughout His entire existence in submission to the Father. And yet that fact does not make Him any less valuable than God the Father, does it? You see, Jesus, in His role of submission, understands it and happily gives Himself. He gives up His contrary view to the will of His Father. He recognizes that they are equal in essence and value, but different in function. And I would say the same thing to you, ladies. Let me encourage you, ladies, on the authority of the Word of God to embrace your role within this church and see yourself as God desires you to be. Not as an abrasive, flashy, immodestly dressed, boisterous, power-tripping woman, but as a quiet learner. One who loves God. One who loves God's church. One who will gladly accept the function given by God. And let me, let me just encourage you ladies to go one step further and seek specific ways that you can be supportive in your role in this church. So what holes or areas of need are there right now that you can fill with the gifts that God has given you? Are you qualified to teach young people or ladies? Is there some lady in the church who needs to be discipled, who you just keep seeing stumble and almost get frustrated could you step up and, and come alongside them and, and help them, encourage them, pray for them, talk with them, meet with them? Is there some way that you can improve the engine or the organism of this church? Ladies, don't get me wrong. I'm glad that you are pursuing godliness and I don't see a desire to usurp authority or, or to, to teach men. I, I don't see that in you. But I pray that your life matches up with your claim. That is that the primary way that you are known in our church and outside of our church is not because of your expensive or flashy clothes or your, your jewelries, jewelry weaved into your hair, but, but because of your good works. May each of us accept our role within the church.
May we each guard against our tendencies for self-glory and do whatever we can for the advancement of Christ's mission in the church. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the clarity of Your Word and we're thankful that You have not left us confused about how we ought to live or what we ought to do, especially within the context of our assembly. We come to worship You and and it is easy for us to get our eyes off of that and, and to use our position in worship as a platform um, for spotlight so that people can look at us and, and look at the great things that we have done and the great education that we have and the great ability that we have to talk about the, the Scriptures or to pray. Lord, maybe for some women it's their desire to draw attention to themselves, their bodies, and I pray that You would help them Uh, to avoid that temptation, to turn away from that and recognize um, their valuable role within the church of Jesus Christ, which is to support and help um, to test the Scriptures, test the teaching of the Scriptures to make sure that what is being said is true, not shy away and become passive, but but rather um, to stand up for truth when necessary, but to do it within the proper roles that have been given. And Lord, we pray that we as men would not um, be abrasive or abusive in our use of our authority and and the privilege that we have of being in in the position that you have given to us to lead the church. And pray, I pray especially for my own heart, Lord, that I would um, work to highlight the gifts of each believer here and to um, commend them in the faith, to honor those who deserve honor, really to outdo one another in showing honor. Lord, I pray that that our church would be um, much like the Godhead in that there is a happy relationship that's going on even though there are differences in roles. I pray the same would be true in our church, that we would each um, embrace our function lovingly, carefully, and um, with thought of, of another, and ultimately with thought of you and your desires. Lord, help us to submit ourselves more faithfully to your word in this area, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.